Live from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by progressive producer Mark Harris, political analyst for WGN Television, Paul Wisnick, community activist and construction owner Willie Preston, from New York City, former NYPD officer Rudolph Hall, and the CEO of DeServo and E-Train, Jason Sherwin, who's involved in the world of police training. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight from our home base at WCGO in beautiful Evanston, Illinois. Our phone lines are open this evening, uh, Lord willing. 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. It has been a week that's been uh, uh, dominated by some international news, but primarily uh, shootings, mass shootings, the the, the trial in, in Minnesota, and then the, the police shooting uh, in Minnesota. So uh, a lot of police-related activities uh, this past week, and we're going to be discussing it, including hopefully we're going to have some resolution, some recommendation as to what can be done to reduce police shootings in the United States. We have some uh, those involved in the training of police officers with us this evening, as well as uh, a former member of the New York uh, Police Department for over 21 years. He'll join us uh, in about 45 minutes on the broadcast. But I begin, uh, I'm going to begin with you, uh, uh, Willie Preston, because you are, uh, you've been a regular listener to this program. You're a Facebook participant frequently. Uh, you're an African-American leader. Uh, you talk about crime in your neighborhood. You talk about education in your neighborhood. And my question to you is, uh, when there is a high-visibility police shooting, as there was uh, for a 13-year-old boy in Chicago, uh, uh, what is the reaction of the people in your neighborhood? Because obviously uh, there are those that think the police officer fired too quickly and uh, shot the man, the young man, who uh, at least in some photos appeared to be uh, throwing a gun behind a fence. What's the reaction in your neighborhood? Well, thank you um, for having me, Bruce. You know, the reaction is um, immediate outrage and almost um, almost a universal um, belief that the police were at fault. And the reason that is, is because the police department, the particularly the, the unions across this country and certainly um, mm-hmm. the FOP here locally mm-hmm. and city leaders and, and, and political leaders across the state have been so stagnant and slow to make common sense reforms. If there were some common sense reforms put in place, then we could level the playing field and distinguish what was a good from a bad in your uh, police involved. In your vi- sure. view, Willie, g- give us two or three common sense reforms that you uh, uh, would put on the table? <clears throat> um, well, there are quite a few, but I'll, I'll give you a few. You said three, here's three. Yeah, give me three. One, one misconduct uh, misconduct records should not be destroyed. And and locally here with Chicago Police Department, after five years, police, police misconduct records are destroyed. That makes no sense. I, you, you cannot put together a, a, a pattern of, um, of, of bad policing from, from cops. That's one. Two, Bruce, if you and I got into a situation right now and you shot me uh, for saying the wrong thing on your show, mm-hmm. you get investigated immediately. But not if you were a if you're Chicago police officer. You have 24 hours before you have to make a statement. So that should be a reform. And in fact, 
if you're a Chicago police officer, Bruce, you can change your statement after you've listened to video and audio mm -hmm. uh, from that from, from the said shooting. That should be a reform. If that was uh, if that was a law for civilians, no one would ever get convicted. Okay. A third. Uh, go ahead. Go okay. give us a third. A third reform. Um, Interro interrogators are they have limitations on what <clears throat> they can ask police officers when it comes to these shootings and we should not have any limitations um interrogators should be able to ask what are they what are they limited can you give us an example of, of uh, uh, how that interrogation would be limited for a police officer so, so i don't have i don't have the particulars and i don't want to misspeak because i want to be completely accurate okay but there are limitations Okay. I want to go to uh, Mark Karras. Mark uh, has identified he's a political progressive. He's also been involved in some uh, uh, police uh, training and some police reforms. Uh, and uh, I want to talk specifically about that a little bit later on because they involve uh, the Kenosha Police Department, which has received quite a bit of notoriety over the last year. But uh, Mark, respond to uh, the suggestions that Willie made. H how many of those are common sense uh, from your perspective? I think Willie's right on target. And I would add that uh, what we pushed for in Wisconsin and what we accomplished was a law that mandates uh, external investigations for all police involved fatalities and serious injury. So that, and, and ironically, Illinois passed a sister law uh, the following year, but they did a carve out for Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we found that whenever you have an, an, uh, a, a, a law enforcement agency investigating itself, that creates um, distrust in the community, and it creates some of the problems that Willie was alluding to. So, independent investigation. But in Wis but in Wisconsin, but in Wisconsin, and maybe in other states as well, doesn't the attorney general uh, or the state police take over the investigation of that case? Wasn't that it one of the things? On that the state, uh, some states do have the state police uh, get involved. Uh, others do not. Uh, since our law passed, uh, six states have followed suit. And that does help. Um, although one thing we have to be aware of is the blue wall of silence can extend beyond the borders of a state. Um, for example, right after our law passed, there was an incident in, in Milwaukee where, uh, where the Milwaukee police did not do the investigation. The State Bureau of Investigation mm -hmm. came in, but the two uh, lead investigators from the State Bureau were former Milwaukee PD. That was okay. the Dontre Hamilton case. Okay. So we need to be really careful. Some states are, are assigning special prosecutors right. to these cases, and that, I think, is the best option. I'm going to bring Paul Lisnick into the conversation. He is the uh, longtime and very respected political analyst for WGN Television, uh, Superstation. You probably watch him all over the country. Uh, he's also an author. He's also an, an active attorney. Uh, Paul, uh, just on the focused question here uh, of these reforms that you've heard uh, bantied about by our other two guests this evening, do they all seem common sense to you? Well, yeah, and I'm going to wear, I, I think primarily for this discussion, Bruce, I'm going to wear a different hat that you know about, which is that for many years I was a jury consultant. Yes, uh, and okay. so working with regard to juries, uh, my office did the O.J. Simpson case and Phil Spector and right. Whitewater and on and on. So a lot of my thoughts have to be from the jury's perspective. And so I'll answer this question really from that view, which is to say, you know, yeah, they're common sense points of view. But when it comes down to trial time, when it comes down to an incident happening and a jury like in Chauvin having to face the issues, they often don't know about any of that. stuff. They're not told about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so really, all of these reforms are about perhaps keeping incidents from happening, keeping incidents from making their way through the system. But once they make their way into the system and once they do happen, it's a whole different ballgame when you're in front of the jury.
And and speaking of the jury, because a lot of people have watched uh, the Chauvin trial over the last several weeks, uh, based on what you have seen thus far, or maybe read in the uh, 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 reports, what's your what's your take? Give me your fifteen second take on it right now, Paul. Well, I've watched the entire trial, and okay. of course, we never know what a jury's going to do. So I have to say that uh, many people have said, "How long will they deliberate?" The bottom line is, you no. Know, there's a rule of thumb: they'll deliberate one day for every week of trial. But I don't think they're going to be out four or five days for this thing. The bottom line is it's hard to imagine that this jury will not come back with a conviction on one of the three counts. Couldn't tell you which one. But the notion that the defense here has been to say, you know, the reason George Floyd died is because of drugs in his system and he was sucking up the carbon monoxide out of the pipe and yep. all this other kind of stuff. I, I think based on reports I'm hearing of the jurors, um, I'm not sure they were buying much okay. of that defense. But we again, got, we, got we got to pause. I'm Bruce Dumont. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us. I want to ask uh, Mark Harris and Willie Preston, have you watched much of the of the Derek Chauvin trial? I have a fair, not. A fair amount. Okay. A little, a fair amount. Uh, what is your take of what you've seen thus far? Again, we've seen primarily the, uh, uh, you know, the, the prosecution, uh, but the defense has come up recently and there's, the, the, it's supposed to go to the trial or go to the jury tomorrow. So what, what, what take would you have on what you've seen thus far from your, progressive political stance? I think the prosecution presented a very powerful case um, augmented by the uh, EMTs and by uh, medical experts. And one thing that really struck me was, and I've heard others comment to this as well, that we see possible cracks in that uh, code of silence because we see Mm -hmm. several uh, Minneapolis PD personnel that have testified for the prosecution. Uh, saying things like, this is not what we train, this is not normal procedure, et cetera. So that that was one of my takeaways. The other was that uh, the defense is really grasping at straws and, and, you know, trying to find a story within a story of whether or not it was the carbon monoxide or whether it was George Floyd's health condition, underlying health conditions, which were the overriding causes. But um, and then thirdly, the fact that uh, Officer Chauvin isn't taking the stand in his own defense, I think, um, it uh, works against his cause. So I think the prosecution's done a good job. Willie, in your opening comment, you made uh, you made the statement that the the, the police officer uh, has time to come up with a statement. You said the civilians have to do it immediately. Uh, we got an email from someone suggesting that that is not the case. A, uh, an individual uh, doesn't have to make a statement at all. They just use a, a fifth defense, a fifth defense. Uh, a Fifth Amendment uh, defense, so they don't have to do that. But, uh, but, but the other question: do, do you agree with that? I mean, would you concur with that uh, assessment from one of our listeners? Um, no. So yes, that's true. 
Um, However, um, there is um, there is a mandate in the contract for police officers to not be questioned within 24 hours. And that is where where things can get pretty sticky. If my partner and I have or or either of us have been involved in the shooting, I have a, a day to. Um, cooperate to, to come up with a story, and even the and even the Justice Department has said that that creates um, a tremendous opportunity to to come up with a with, now, with a with a different story. Now, in the Chauvin trial, a, a lot of time was spent talking about uh, whether there was uh, drugs in his system, whether he was a, a drug addict, and and a lot about things that happened uh, prior to uh, that that uh, day in in Minneapolis involving with a, with the police department. George Floyd, we're talking about. Some uh, and 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 a lot of people say, well, that's that's irrelevant. That has nothing to do, you know, whether he was a druggie or or, or on the wrong side of the law. That, that has really it's not relevant to the case that we're looking at. Bruce, can uh, I give you a quick response to that? Yes. So the reason they're doing that is because people have to remember. Some people are confused. They think, well, the prosecution has to prove this, and the defense has to prove he's he's not guilty, and that's not the case. All the defense is trying to do here, even with those theories, which none of us seem to be buying, is convince one juror out of 12 right. that there is a reasonable doubt and that they're going to simply vote to vote not guilty. All you need is one and you have a hung jury. So that's really their effort. They're not trying to win this case. I think they're trying to deadlock the jury mm-hmm. and they're trying to get somebody to buy into one of those theories. And that, and that, and that by doing that, they're hoping that there's somebody on that jury who, who believes in their heart that the guy looks guilty or looks like a drug addict or because he has that and they've had an experience with drugs or uh, they, they look him in and they look at him in a negative way. Thus their, their decision and the ability to make a, a solid decision based on the evidence is somewhat questionable. Yeah, but what, well, go ahead, I'm, Paul. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Well, it's, the reason, it's the reason this is the Derek Chauvin trial and not the George Floyd trial. Right. And one of the things, that the defense lawyers are mm-hmm. trying to do is turn this into the George Floyd trial. But, you know, in fairness, that's their job. It's all they've got. So it's what they have to do. And, and, um, and you know, there may be some juror, and, and the way the jurors ought to look at it is to say, okay, maybe George Floyd wasn't the altar boy of the year uh, or something like that. But, you know, whether he had something ahead of time, all we know about is what happened at that moment and what the cop was doing to him uh-huh. and what the other cops were doing as they watched. And, and even this, this notion of, you know, the crowd could have erupted at any time and the officers couldn't concentrate. All of these, if jurors understand how this, or if people understand how this works on the jury, understand all they're trying to do is create reasonable doubt in one mind. Okay, now let me go back to one of the other things that you thought, uh, Willie, uh, should be part of any reform is that uh, that a police officer's record uh, should not be made public if there have been beefs against that particular officer. You think that should be part of the public record? So my question to you is, if it's if it's irrelevant as to what George Floyd was or did before the incident, why should it be relevant as to what the officer has done prior to that incident? Don't if if you're going to erase each person's past, don't you have to be consistent? Yeah, well, listen, I don't think that those two are, are fair to be uh, compared. So when we're looking why at not? And I, and tell I, me why. Tell I'll, me why. I'll separate them. If we're looking at a police officer for, for some police misconduct, we, we, we ultimately want to look and see, you know, is, th- is there a pattern here? Is he always knocking people upside his head? Or does he have a ton of um, people claiming that he's shot at them or, or, or some nature? Mm-hmm. With, the jo- with, the, with the George Floyd case, we're, we're bringing up his history. We're not trying to prove that George Floyd, um, is a dr- was he, whether he, was, he had abused drugs or not, 
we're trying they're trying to prove that he that that, um, that the officer was in violation and, and acted in a way that, that that wasn't in keeping with his training and that's why the, the two don't compare the officer was not trained to sit on George Floyd's neck the way that he did and that has been as as Mark pointed out earlier and I did catch that part of the trial that has been in my judgment if I'm a juror I believe it was proved because mm-hmm. as we all know there is a blue code of silence and when you start to see people within their own ranks um, come out and clearly um, say that's not what we trained to do right then I think that that's then I think that's um that, that's but here's game. my question does 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 the prosecution does the police department does anybody within your sphere within and I'm not asking you to speak for the black community I'm just speaking within your sphere of influence does anybody give the prosecution and the police department credit? for breaking the silence and, and, and crossing over the blue line? Do they well, get credit for that? Well, you do, okay, but, well, but do many of your uh, friends well, give them credit? Well, well it's, it's so infrequently, it happens so, it happens at such an infrequent rate, you know, that's that's a test to be, um to, to, to still be taken mm-hmm. because it doesn't happen. And that's why we need to make certain that we have these reforms, particularly within the contract, so that we get rid of uh, certain things. There's, some, there's an issue, you can't give a, you can't reward a cop right now if they come out. Um, and, and say this is what you know this this officer, my fellow officer, did within the contract. It's put in the contract, and the reason why it's put in the contract, boots, is because we want to keep the blue code of silence. We want to disincentivize police officers from saying this person acted in a way that that went against the shield. Paul, do you went against do you their agree, responsibility? Do you agree with Willie's assessment of uh, uh, the reluctance of the uh, larger police community to sort of? Uh, Keep the blue uh, line going. Oh, I don't think there's any question that this has been a very unusual case uh, where you had so many, cr- not you know, not just experts coming in as a cop, yeah. but currently serving officers or chiefs who came in to essentially uh, testify against Chauvin. That's a very unusual situation. I will say, after my show, when I when I dealt with the um, uh, the situation this morning on on my on my show, I had an officer write me afterwards and send an email, basically saying, you know. He said, you know, we've all seen that video of Chauvin's knee on the neck. He goes, but that's all this one video. There are some other videos. And we've heard some testimony, which is where he's getting that. Um, of, well, maybe the knee was actually on the shoulder and, you know, trying to move it off. This is the kind of doubt that gets created. But as, uh, as I think Willie said, and Mark, um, there's no question that what you had here was testimony from cops saying, it's not how we train. It's not what you do. That was wrong. That to me is the most powerful testimony among others that you heard during the course of this trial. And all of this Maybe the leg moved. Maybe he was doing. Maybe he's wait. Wait. Did you? Did that's just not going to fly with the jury. Uh, Mark, do you agree with what Willie said? Is that the background of the police officer is more important and relevant to the case than the background of the perpetrator in this case? I, I think it depends on what's happening at the at the moment of uh, truth when the when the uh, alleged crime happens. So, as Willie points out, uh, Derek Chauvin's propensity to possibly be a uh, quick to use uh, force when it may not be necessary. It by the apply. way, by the way, let me let let, let me just be clear. I, I don't. I, we're talking about a lot of cases. I don't want to mix them up. Uh, that wasn't so much the case with Derek Chauvin. It has been brought up already in in relationship to the police shooting of uh, the 13 year old boy in Chicago mm-hmm. because they because there had been some uh, I guess some some involvement with. Uh, uh, with 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 the police department and the, with the police officer, even though he was never convicted or charged with anything, at least that's out as part of the public uh, record. Sure, and Bruce, I would add that that context does matter. But, but quickly to conclude on the other point, 
I think the blue wall of silence only is only showing some fissures in the Chauvin case because this is an international case. This has taken on such uh, uh, weight in the last uh, eight months since it happened. There are dozens, hundreds of cases flying under the radar where the blue wall of silence, as far as I know, is alive and well. And, and, and you can look at how many instances when a whistleblowing cop has pointed out misdeeds among the, the, mm. uh, the force or among a partner, and they're often ridden out of the department. Mm. They're ridiculed and they're ostracized. I know of one case of one of the people we work with in Wisconsin, the guy had 70 merit awards, 70 merit awards over a 29 and one half year career, and he would not go along to get along in falsifying some evidence and the department ran him out of the department six months before he was due to get his 30-year um, retirement. That, mm. that officer now is, um, is a teacher in a minority area, and he's a Golden Apple-nominated uh, teacher. But that, mm. that shows you the level of how some of this, the, the, the blue wall can exist. To your mm. other point, I think context does matter. And uh, um, I mean, again, it depends on the specifics, specifics of the incident, but you know, we do have to take into account um, background and and, uh, and criminal record in some cases, depending on the okay. incident. When we come and back, move. when we come back, I want to I want to switch gears and talk a little bit more about the shooting of the 13-year-old in Chicago, and also to talk about uh, the other incident in Minneapolis and whether that conceivably could have any impact on the Derek Chauvin trial verdict. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle. Of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border. David Rodriguez and Jeff Gotland are joining us uh, from California in two separate uh, big cities out there, but uh, part of our listening audience this evening. Uh, at this moment, I want each of our guests to take a few moments and explain uh, to the rest of those watching a little bit about their background and what brings them to the discussion this evening. We'll start with Mark Harris. Mark? Hi, Bruce. Uh, good to be on your show again. Um, I'm Mark Karras. I'm a producer and strategist. Uh, I've done a lot of TV documentaries, and in recent years, I've been working in a pretty extensively in public policy, in particular, police accountability and safety. And um, the group I'm working with uh, is uh, michaelbell.info. And uh, I live near Chicago, married with uh, three wonderful kids. Okay, and uh, we're going to follow up on uh, what the, the the case that you're involved in uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's it's not the famous case that most people know about, uh, but it it is a case, and uh, it it's it's an example, and it answers the question 
that probably many people have is when we hear all of these stories, whatever happens, is there any change? Is there any reform that ever comes out of it? Uh, uh, and uh, Mark Karras has an example of at least in one case where uh, some positive things happen, and we'll hear that story in just a moment. Willie Preston, tell us about yourself. Okay, Bruce, thanks for having me um, again on the show. I'm, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan. Um, I originally, um, I grew up in Inglewood here on the south side of Chicago. I have been involved uh, for a number of years in, in, in public matters as an activist, as an advocate, and as a former um, candidate for public office. I ran for state representative in Illinois in, mm -hmm. in 31, 31st district. And I've been very um, out front on uh, a few years back on police reform um, because it's one of the most important issues of our time. And it's, it's something that we can actually, um, we can change. And, and I just wanna say for the record quickly, uh, I believe most cops do a very extremely jo difficult job very well. But the reason why we must reform is for those uh, majority of good cops so that they don't, they're not sour about the, the few bad apples out there that do exist and we all know. It. Okay. Paul Lisnick, let's go to you. You've got a long resume. Uh, summarize it for us. All right. In a few sentences, I'm the political analyst, WGN-TV. I anchor the show WGN-TV Political Report Sunday mornings at 9. But I think, again, what brings me to you, aside from being a lawyer, a law professor, teach constitutional law and all of that, uh, really is the jury consultant hat I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it, it's been my work and role, and I've written books about what juries do, how they do it, and, and working in some of the most notable cases we've we follow through the years, including O.J. Simpson and right. Oklahoma bombing and on and on. And so uh, I, I just think it's always very important. We all talk about the system. We have our view of what's happening. But I think we always want to keep an eye on what the jury's doing and why they do what they do. So that's what I'm trying to, yeah. to lend this conversation. And the anniversary of the Oklahoma bombing is tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, you also have authored a new novel. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called, uh, so it's behind me. It's called Assumed Treason and my, my <laughs> foray into, uh, into the world of fiction. Uh, assume guilt and assume treason. Yeah, let's see that book. There it is. Assume treason. Right. There it is. Oh, where am I pointing? It's over well, there. No, we and, got it right uh, on the screen here. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. So anyway, um, it, the hero is a guy named Matt Barlow. He's a jury consultant. And so okay. uh, whereas everybody always points to the lawyers and everybody else, I have the jury consultant resolve mm -hmm. the problems of the day. So uh, that, that's always Good. been my focus. Very, very, um, very important role. Uh, I want to go back to uh, Mark. Uh, Mark, give us a brief summary. There was a, there was a case in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Give us a brief description of what the problem was, because I'm most interested in knowing what you and, and Mr. Bell did to get some significant changes in the state of Wisconsin that are being picked up by other states uh, at this moment. Sure. Uh, well, I work with a, um, a client in Wisconsin named Michael Bell. Um, he's a retired uh, Air Force officer. And um, he was Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force. And back in 2004, his 21-year-old uh, son, Michael Bell Jr., was uh, killed, shot and killed by the Kenosha Police Department in an awful uh, mistake of fact incident, not unlike the Dante Wright incident. Um, the, the police were trying to arrest Michael Bell Jr. And I should add, he's a, he was a young white kid, uh, trying to arrest him on suspicion of DUI. And it appears uh, that the, uh, one of the officers hooked his uh, gun on a car mirror, but that caused that officer to start screaming that he had been disarmed. And that led another officer to run up to the melee and shoot and kill Michael Bell Jr. in his own driveway, 10 feet from his mother and sister and in front of multiple eyewitnesses. Um, 
the police report was wrapped up in a little over two days. The police concluded that Michael Bell was trying to disarm an officer, even though that was contrary to all the eyewitnesses. Uh, it was contrary to the lab reports. The medical examiner described the Kenosha PD's uh, version of the event as forensically impossible. Um, and yet uh, there was no change. And uh, ultimately the Bell family sued the city. They got a $2 million settlement. Um, it, they took almost a little less than 2 million. They took most of that uh, um, award or that um, settlement and, and Michael Bell put it into raising awareness on the fallacy or the difficulty or the problem of self-investigation of law, law enforcement departments investigating themselves. So you went higher and, up in Wisconsin, what happened? Uh, and so ultimately, uh, Mr. Bell took out more billboards in Wisconsin than McDonald's. And the billboard said, when police kill, should they judge themselves? And this got the mayors up in arms. It's got the unions up in arms. And the head of the largest union in, this, in the state called him and said, you got to take those billboards down because they're making, they're, they're ruining our reputation. And Mr. Bell said, I'll take them down when you help me pass a law that uh, mandates external investigations for police-involved fatalities. Uh, and the head of the union said, okay, let's work together. And that started, and then a bill, uh, a, um, a, a bill was drafted um, by two uh, legislators, um, and it made its way through committee. And there were some bumps along the way. Our group uh, did meet with uh, most of the police unions in the state and several DAs. They could see that we had done our homework as, as Willie uh, alluded, we weren't anti-police. In fact, we're very pro-police. Uh, our group was made up of an ex-cop. I'm the son of a career military officer. Michael Bell was an Air Force pilot. Um, and once they could see that what we were advocating, which was external investigations of all police-involved incidents, that that actually worked on behalf of the community as well as the police. So ultimately, the bill did get to Governor Walker's desk at the time. He signed it, and it became law, and it uh, has had some positive influence uh, from there on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul Lesnick, a question to you. Uh, uh, when things of this nature happen, usually the first microphone that is thrust in someone's face is uh, the president of the local police union. And, and they almost 100% always rally around the officer that is in the spotlight. Is there any way to that? That obviously is an important part of the uh, of the the blue line of, of silence here blue coat of silence. Is there any way to break that? I mean, can can, a, can someone survive in a union if if they were to look at some of these cases and say, you know what, uh, this isn't just a bad cop. He blew it. I mean, it could be a bad cop. It could also be someone that just had a bad day. You know, Bruce, this is all about the system of litigation, in my view, even at that stage. And right. so president of the teachers union, including, the, the, you know, in the, in the Adam Toledo case, the Leo case that we're dealing with now, right. um, you know, the, the president of the union came out and defended this cop, but that's their job. Uh, and that's what they should be doing. And there will be other people like the attorneys for the Toledo family who will come out and, and say just the opposite. So I'm not really bothered by people. I understand what, what you're saying. Wouldn't it be wonderful if one side or the other looked and said, hey, maybe this isn't the way it seems, but but that's the way the system is going to play it out. That's the investigation that's going to happen. Um, and even in this recent Chicago situation, I mean, look, initially, you know, everybody went after the cops. But I think, if, you know, if this goes on and investigation goes on, you know, we're, it's not going to be seen that way. I think this is going to be one. Where would you throw where, where would you throw the media into the discussion? Because don't don't at least in my case, don't they tend to jump on the side of the victim? I, Generally my, speaking. 
my view is the media is trying to talk to everybody that they can. The problem is you have people who refuse to talk to them. So, yes, those allegations are made or, or there, there may be a certain, you know, anchor here, anchor there, a reporter who has a twist on a case. But, you know, if you watch any reliable newscast, I'd like to say WGN, you're going to see one report, which is from the, in this case, Officer Stillwell, yeah. that's the Adam Toledo case, from his point of view and what was going on and what he's been doing. And you're going to see the Toledo family. Any reliable newscast is going to have both. Now, you're not going to get that perhaps at night on some of the cable stations where you have, you know, either a very conservative bend. Yeah. Fox has been doing its own thing with this. And maybe MSNBC is doing the opposite view. But uh, I think most people who resort to it, I will, think local news is probably the place to go if you're going to get a more balanced approach. Willie, Willie Preston, does it does it help and improve anything if 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 activists use a word like murder to describe what happened to Adam Taleo? If they, if they move it if they move it to the M word, what does that do to the discussion? I think that we have to get to a place um, where where we can distinguish all of these cases and treat them individually because that's exactly what they are. It's a case by case basis. And and but the people that but but the people that scream and yell and chant well, they frequently use those words and 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 they clearly don't have the education, the legal education, to be able to explain to them uh, rules of evidence and everything else that are part of our judicial system. Well, let, let, let me let me let me echo Mark. Um, I'm sorry, Paul, a bit here. You know, from the from the police union perspective, they have a job to do, which is to defend their members, and that's clear, and we all understand that. From an activist point of view, um, I think some activists or many activists, and especially in our town in Chicago. Their job is to is to rally folks up. And I don't think they're going to rally folks up by saying this one wasn't maybe this wasn't foul play in this particular instance. So, you know, you're going to you you, you can you have to take um, certain things um, from certain people with a grain of salt. Personally, I think that we have to make certain that we do get these reforms passed. And we take this seriously. And I think the union, um, sort of what Mark spoke about, it's in their best interest to protect their good cops from those bad apples back endorsing some of these reforms. Okay. Um, and, when we come back, we, we that, that way we can start to say this one maybe wasn't a bad. We a do bad have we do have, we bad. do have to pause. I've got to go to a break. Uh, we've got somebody that just wrote in and they they said that they'd like to see the three of you on the streets of Chicago and come back a couple of months later and talk about it. When we come back, we will be talking with the street cop. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery, and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Bellway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. We're talking about uh, 
policing in America, some of the incidents that have happened around the country involving uh, officer shootings uh, in in some cases that have become very, uh, very controversial. Obviously, we've also had, uh, uh, you know, mass shootings uh, take place since we last met, including uh, uh, at the FedEx uh, facility in Indianapolis, Indiana. But uh, joining us now from uh, his home in New York City is uh, Rudolph Hall, because we wanted to hear from a real live street cop. And uh, for 21 years, he was a police officer uh, in New York City. He also worked a variety of beats out there. And, uh, Rudolph, thank you very much for joining us uh, on Beyond the Beltway this evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this panel. Good. I'd like to start with you by just giving your your overall assessment as to where do you think the the climate of police community relations are. And uh, based on some of the things that we discussed in hour number one uh, of the show, uh, do, do you think that uh, do you think there's enough public support that we may see some real significant reforms in, in policing? Um, I think we've already seen significant reforms. Um, if you look at body one cameras, I'll tell you for, uh, personally, going I was first introduced to the idea of body cameras in 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was there was no way I would want to wear a camera. Mm-hmm. And if I wouldn't wear a camera, how could I possibly ask a cop to wear a camera? Mm-hmm. And then I got smarter and I started doing research. And actually the focus of my uh, doctoral dissertation was on body-worn cameras and the effect on plainclothes police officers. And once I learned more about the cameras, I became a big proponent of body cameras. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great tool for the police and for the community. So when we say reform, I think reform has been happening um, over the past few years. Um, we are definitely at a crossroads right now when we look at what's happening across the country, uh, sentiment towards police officers, how police officers feel about their jobs, you know, going to work every day. We're at a crucial moment right now. And I think there has to be strong leadership, no matter what side you you fall on, um, to ensure that we don't fracture any more than where we currently are. How widespread are our uh, our police uh, cameras? In other words, does the, does the police department do most police departments in the United States have to carry them and wear them? So I'll tell you, the majority of large uh, police departments have body cameras. Um, there's about eighteen thousand departments across the United States of America, and currently we're probably about sixty five to seventy percent have body cameras. Um, far as policies on when to record and retention policies, those vary across the spectrum of uh, law enforcement, but the, at least the majority of uh, departments do have body cameras. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that uh, Willie Preston said in our first hour, uh, he, he was mentioning that, uh, you know, a police officer doesn't have to give their report uh, right away. They've got some time to do it. Should, should the release of that video be quicker than it has appeared to be over the last several years, including a, uh, you know, a classic incident in, in Chicago uh, with Laquan McDonald that uh, it right. took months to get the, the, the video released. Right. I think it was actually over a year with Laquan yeah. McDonald. Actually. Right. Um, I would, so here's the, the only issue with releasing body cameras and from the public, uh, from the, from the public's point of view, we all want to see what happened. I think there's another piece when we talk about actions that involve criminal conduct, because there still is a due process that has to happen. 
mm-hmm. and releasing videos, I think it's in many times it quells the public thirst for information about an incident. But also we have to think about how does this impact the legal proceeding? Um, I think, well, I've seen a lot, a lot of uh, agencies over the past year or so have actually started to release videos much quicker. Mm-hmm. I do not know personally how that's impacted any criminal cases. Um, but again, body cameras are a tool. They don't tell you everything, right? So from an investigative perspective, just taking a body camera, you can't determine exactly what happened just from a body camera. Mm-hmm. It's um, lighting conditions. If the officer's running, if there's multiple officers on scene, there's a lot of other factors that come into play. It seems also, at least in some cases involving Illinois, uh, the police officer uh, forgot to turn the camera on. There was malfunction. They turned it off too early. There was no sound. Uh, Paul Lisnick, uh, let me bring you into this conversation. Do you th- is is that uh, is that something that you hear too frequently in these cases as well? That the body camera may be a good idea, but not every police officer is really uh, charged up about it like uh, Rudolph might. Uh, yeah, Bruce, it's always frustrating when we hear that an officer says the camera's not working or uh, recently, actually, I think, I forgot what, a certain moment, maybe Rudolph knows, at a certain moment, the camera, in some places, the officer's told to turn the camera off. Right. Uh, certain things. So there are various rules at play. But, you know, the bottom line from the jury perspective is they want to see those tapes. Those nine minutes and 29 seconds in the Derek Chauvin trial are really critical. It wouldn't surprise me if the prosecution runs that entire thing during their closing argument one last time. And let's remember one of the very first trials, my office worked on that as well, which was Rodney King, where the videotape in that case was absolutely critical uh, to what the jury were going, was going to do. But the lawyers, look at the, you know, I don't care what's in the, in the videotape, the lawyers are able to look at those videotapes and sometimes give it a spin in their direction. Sometimes in the Chauvin trial, for example, where it's more difficult to it also comes back, obviously, to who, who the police officers involved. And one of the things I want to talk about in the in the next hour is I want to talk about uh, the recruitment of officers. I know James Clyburn said that uh, he thinks that, that that is even more important than police reforms, is looking at ways to recruit different officers, uh, maybe having them trained a little bit uh, uh, more significantly than now, uh, insofar as before the first time they ever go out on the street. Uh, Rudolph, I know you're planning to stay with us for the next hour. Can I ask our other guests, uh, uh, can you all join us for another hour or not? Or do we have to run? Okay. For those that have to run, uh, you won't see them in the next hour. For those that will be here. And also, we're going to hear from Jason Sherwin in this hour. He is a someone who's worked on a new plan to train uh, police officers and uh, reduce some of these uh, uh, quick firings. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. 
Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV... We're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win... We all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. We're still right back with hour number two of Beyond the Beltway, where everyone's listening from coast to coast and border to border. Nice to uh, have you with us. Um, We have Paul Lisnick, who's a political analyst for WGN Television in Chicago with us. Mark Karras, who is a progressive uh, filmmaker. And also Willie Preston, who owns a construction company and also is an activist in the Chicago area. And also on the phone from New York is Rudolph Hall, who for 21-plus years was a member of the New York Police Department. And a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by uh, Jason Sherwin, who is uh, involved in training uh, police officers. And we're going to talk about uh, what can be done to uh, uh, to uh, resolve some of the uh, uh, quick uh, trigger uh, shootings that uh, we have apparently uh, seen and heard around the country for quite some time. Uh, Rudolph, back to you. You mentioned that uh, you think there's been quite a bit of reform uh, around the country over the last several years. When when a police department reaches out to you and Jason Sherwin to come in and work on training programs, uh, where does the impetus of that come from? I mean, are you soliciting them? Are they under pressure from local political leaders, from local community leaders? Where does the where's the pressure point to involve you in a 
um, in in a case or in a in a oh, department? I'm sorry. Um, I, I will tell you that unfortunately, I have found that for many agencies, especially some of the larger agencies, it takes an incident to spark change. Right? It, it often, oftentimes, it takes uh, some crucial event, whether it happened within their agency or a sister agency. And that makes people wake up. Um, this is this is one of the things we need now in policing. I say I mentioned before about leadership. Mm -hmm. We need leaders to think beyond the current circumstances. Think ahead. Think forward. Think about technology. How can we improve officers? So when uh, I was introduced to DeServo and what uh, Jason and his team, uh, the training that they're offering, it was phenomenal. This is taking you know modern day technology, using body cameras and help make officers make better decisions in the field mm -hmm. in a training environment. So long with an answer to get to, to your initial question, uh, I think oftentimes it's um, for some of the larger, larger agencies, it takes uh, a pivotal moment for them to actually start seeking out new training opportunities and ideas, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And a question for those uh, watching or listening to this program, uh, they, they may not know that you are an African-American. So a question yes. that I would have for you is, uh, since there seems to be so much um, unrest between the African-American community and police departments around the country that are predominantly white, um, are, are African-Americans more or less likely to accept a police reform um, if the department itself is run by an African-American or by a Caucasian? Um, I think the first mistake is to, to believe that African-American community is just a monolithic community that we, we, we think in, in one mindset, right? So the African-American community, we have conservatives, you have uh, liberals, we have everything in between. Um, I don't think, I think that there's a history where the belief is, well, if you have a black chief or commissioner, then the black community is going to be satisfied. So I think people in the community still want to see Officers held accountable. They want to see real leadership and they want to see someone who cares about their community. And I don't think it necessarily has to be someone who is black or Latino or white. Right. I don't think race matters when it comes to that. I mean, most people want to see what are you actually doing in our communities? Willie Preston, what was your reaction to the same question? Well, while I would at times um, I'd like to say that we're not a monolith, the realities just don't bear that out. You look at our voting patterns, you look at a lot of the health issues, you look at our financial, um, the financial states of African-American peoples, it is generally, um, it is generally consistent. Um, so we have to, in practice, um, we, 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 we tend to op operate the same exact way. One thing I will say to answer your question directly is, I do not think it matters one way or the other for the majority of people, black people included, um, what, who's at the top when those reforms come down. What matters is if we stop getting murdered unjustifiably. Now, I will like to say this, Bruce, you mentioned something earlier. All activists aren't made the same. You mentioned um, um, Toledo, the young man Toledo a bit. Right. What's clear is what happened to Adam Toledo is a tragedy. What's not clear to everybody, activists and advocates and people across the city, is that, what, that it was an unjustified shooting. That's not clear. And let me be clear on that. You know, what we have to recognize is, is that opponents of common sense police reforms, they are lighting the torches of these activist hustlers who will say 
everything that the cops do are bad because that can draw a crowd. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is embrace real reforms right now so that people can be clear that the greater interest at all times is the public safety. Mm-hmm. It's not just protecting bad cops. We it's should making sure that we're doing we're acting responsibly. We and my all, son wants yeah, to be a cop. Yeah. Okay. That's good. We should also uh, state for those around the country that may not follow the intricacies of this uh, Adam Toledo case. This is the thirteen-year-old, thirteen-year-old uh, uh, Latino uh, who was shot and killed by the Chicago Police Department. There, there is. And and you see the video, and you look at the video for a split second, and you say, "Oh my God, this is this is an easy case to decide." But what was not shown in some of the early uh, the network coverages is um, the uh, the sight of what appears to be a gun uh, hidden behind the back of Adam Toledo, and then uh, the apparent uh, they find a gun uh, behind a fence. So it looks as though uh, you don't see a picture of it. But, you know, a gun is in a hand at one moment and a split second later, that gun is, you know, behind a fence and Adam Toledo has been shot in the chest. So uh, there, there's a lot of reason to to explain and, or to to, to re- reconsider uh, what you see with your with your own eyes, Paul. And I, you know, I, I've seen initial reports where uh, news operations only showed uh, one piece of video. They didn't show the second piece of video, and uh, that already, uh, you know, uh, slants the case to those that uh, saw it the first time. Well, if and when there is some kind of trial, there probably will be uh, at least civil in that case. Yes, there, there is. When you, when you get the frame of that video, there is a scene where you have him holding the gun in his right. hand. But by the time his hands are up, uh, eight hundredths of a millisecond later, the gun is gone. So, you know, what, what people are going to have to wonder is how much time did Officer Stilwell really have to react? He didn't have time to stop the video and slow things down and check things mm-hmm. out. Things happened in less than a second and he had to react. One other comment on the race thing, since I've been talking jury all night, I should say that a lot of people, whenever we're talking jury, how many blacks in the jury, how many whites, how many whatever, that demographics are the least predictive thing of what jurors will do ultimately in the case. The one example where they were predictive based on research and study ahead of time was the O.J. Simpson case. Mm -hmm. There they were predictive, but almost always it's about life experience, not Mm -hmm. just what somebody's race or gender is. Mark Karras, back to you on the uh, on the Adam Toledo shooting and and your reaction to the way it's been portrayed uh, in the media and the way in which those of the progressive uh, uh, political slant have have reacted or in some cases overreacted. Uh, in making the charges against uh, the officer, including uh, the use of the word murder. Sure. Uh, Bruce, I, I have to say, I've been very disappointed in the general media coverage of the incident. I heard one reporter give an accurate uh, counting of the incident, and it happened to be a, a black reporter from CNN who did call it in right after the video was made public, and he gave a very accurate play-by-play of the young man running down the street. The I've, got to, I've got to interrupt you, Mark, because we're going to a break. Uh, we'll okay. continue that conversation. And uh, we thank you all for joining us, Paul Lisnick and Mark Harris. And Willie Preston, thank you for joining us. We will continue with Rudolph Hall in a moment. Okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. 
Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Christian went back, and uh, we're joined by uh, Rudolph Hall. We continue with him, a veteran uh, police member, police department member from New York City. And uh, Rudolph, briefly, let, let's take a couple of minutes and just to talk a little bit about your uh, your pedigree and, and your involvement with the NYPD. 21 years is a long time. Uh, what, what, where, where'd you work? So I, I covered uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, areas within NYPD. I started out in PSA 8 which is PSA stands for public service area, which Uh are officers who are tasked with patrolling public housing developments. I did my field training there in the Eastern section of the Bronx. Uh, From there, I went to the 73rd precinct, which is in Brooklyn, New York. Um, At that point I did patrol, did a plainclothes anti-crime enforcement. And from there I went to Brooklyn North gang unit where I covered all of Brooklyn North in uh, dealing with gang members, was promoted Sergeant, Went to the 7-0 precinct. Uh, from there, I went to Brooklyn South Borough Crime, which is a, sh- a street crime unit covering all of Brooklyn South. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Detective Bureau. I was in the Detective Bureau for four years where I investigated pattern robberies. I supervised the investigation of pattern mm-hmm. robberies. And then I went to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, worked on uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force for about three years. Then I got uh, oh. tasked with working in Risk Management Bureau. With uh, when I started doing a lot of work with body cameras and uh, training on uh, well, no. Rudolph, there, there should there should be a TV series just about your career. <laughs> uh, we'll put it out in the airways, see what happens. <laughs> uh, a, a question uh, is the do someone once told me I used to go on Operation Ride Alongs years ago, young uh, when I was very fresh in my uh, uh, career. I used to do it literally. I mean, a lot. And uh, one thing I heard uh, from several officers, both black and white was that black officers tend to be tougher on potential criminals than white officers. Any, any truth to that? Again, I think that's a case by case situation. I know there are times when you, when African-American officers are tougher on dealing with individuals who may come from the same communities they come from. Right. Because of the notion, Hey, I came from the same place you did and I made it out. I'm doing well for my community right. as opposed to terrorizing my community or selling drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some officers who are more empathetic to uh, criminals who may be of the same race. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think it's a standard across the board with, within law enforcement, but there are some cases where that is true. There have been recommendations uh, in the last week that uh, the, the traffic stop is uh, a very difficult thing. It may be viewed as a simple thing by the general public but it really is one of the most dangerous things. And some have suggested that uh, police officers look at how they handle traffic stops differently. Is that, is that something that uh, your e-training is going to be looking into or what is your general reaction? I mean, I don't know how how much time you spent in traffic stops, but what's your assessment of uh, uh, the importance of them and how they're handled? So uh, I'll answer this question on two fronts. One, um, Traffic stops are important, um, and they are one of the most dangerous encounters for a police officers. Traffic stops and 
domestic violence uh, cases. Um, in a traffic stop, you're dealing with someone who you don't know if you think they may have uh, ran through a red light and you pull them over for that red light where they just actually murdered someone. And now that person thinks you're pulling them over because you know that they just committed this crime. And the officer approaching that vehicle has no idea what he's encountering, right? Because your car is kind of your home. Everybody knows where everything is in your car, whether it's a weapon or whether it's your ID, everybody knows their car. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely dangerous for police officers approaching vehicles. Um, On the other hand, the public doesn't know their responsibility in a traffic stop. And I, and I always do this test. I, I'm an adjunct professor at John Jay College also. And I always ask my students, if you're driving, you were pulled over for a minor infraction and the officer asked you to get out of the vehicle, do you have to get out of the vehicle? And 85% of the time, students will tell me, I don't have to get out of the car. I would if the officer asked me, but I don't have to get out. And that is incorrect, right? It's been case law that's ruled on this in the Supreme Court, where if a police officer pulls you over, and ask you to step out of the vehicle, you must get out of the vehicle. Now that doesn't give the officer a right to search your vehicle, but you must exit the vehicle. And because the public, majority of the public doesn't know that, that often causes confrontation. So how there's just, a just education on, that needs just, to happen. Yeah, just, just on that point, how do you, uh, I, I would add one more thing is, if the police tell you to stop, stop. Don't run right. from the police because you're not likely to be able to outrun the, their bullet. If if you may be able to un- outrun their feet, you're not going to outrun their bullet. So how does that how does that basic education get into the system of of not only I mean all young people, regardless of their race? How how, how does that how do you break that? That's that's a that's that's a code that's equally as 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 vicious as a, a code of silence with police officers. You think you can run away? Well, we have a lack of civic training in, in K through 12 education, right? right? So we, we have uh, young people in high school right now who have no idea how bills are made, how laws are passed. They don't understand the dynamics of interaction with the police. These are all things that should be taught. If it's not taught in the home, it should definitely be part of uh, any uh, K through 12, especially high school curriculum. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I ter- totally agree with that. It also gets into uh, uh, how our legal system works. I mean, you know, just because someone is charged with a crime, I mean, they don't, you know, they, they, they want to string the officer up right away. Uh, mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, or, or use the word, uh, you know, uh, murder. So right. my uh, getting back to uh, the, the, the procedures that you dealt with on the street, and again, everybody has seen, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of movies and TV shows over their lives, but what is the biggest misperception of street policing in America? I think right now, the majority of the of the public thinks that there are more, there's more cases of use of force by officers than really is. And I say this, it's look at New York City. So New York City, on average, has about 4 million calls for service per year, on average. That's just calls for service. That doesn't count when officers take proactive steps to actually stop someone, whether it's a traffic stop or a reasonable suspicion of criminality or for a violation. Mm-hmm. So that could be about another million to two million encounters. The times on average, police in New York City actually kill someone less than 20 times a year. Now, that number can be from a motor vehicle crash. It could be from officer off shooting, but it's less than 20 times a year. So when I say say that, it's because these encounters are relatively infrequent. 
because of the world we live in now where information is constantly being fed to us through social media, through news, apps on your phone, it seems like it's happening more than it is. Now, that doesn't mean that there's still not a lot of work to be done to reduce the number that currently that we're currently at. But it doesn't happen as much as people think it does. That's probably the biggest misconception I've seen so far. It also goes to the top of the of the list for those assignment editors and those producers of, of news programs. If they see a story that looks like some other story, I mean, mm-hmm. wh- whether it's uh, uh, violence against Asians, whether that's real or not, the mm-hmm. perception is that it's real. And the perception is at the moment, you know, when you when you have the incident of the police officer in Minnesota, while while people have been watching the the, the jury trial of Derek Chauvin, it happens in the same week. I mean, uh, it, it would seem to me that 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 one officer shooting involving the 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 26 year veteran female officer um, that could impact some people on the jury if they see that news report. Absolutely. And one of the biggest problems, and I don't want to get into a bash in the media segment, but and this is why I think the media has to take accountability for the information they put out. I can't think of a case where the media put out a story, an officer involved shooting, an officer involved incident, and the initial story they put out, when the facts came out later on that it was incorrect or there was more to the story, rarely do I see them go in depth with a, a follow-up piece to say, hey, that initial story we put out, we got it wrong. We actually have more information. There was other video. Now we've seen the full video mm-hmm. and we want to let the public know that the officer wasn't wrong in his actions. So it has to be a balance because when officers are wrong, we know need to hold them accountable. But when they do something right, we need to also acknowledge that too. Go back to the beginning of your police career uh, when you were at the Academy. How much time was spent explaining to you and demonstrating to you the proper use of your service revolver? I'll tell you, on average, police academies across the country, you'll spend about 60 to 61 hours during your academy time on using your firearm. Um, my, acad- my academy experience, trying to, trying to remember back that far, uh, I think we spent, I want to say, a full week, maybe two weeks of actual like training with your weapon. Mm-hmm. Then you had to qualify. And then every year, twice a year, you go back and qualify with your service weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, based on what was happening when you were in the academy, mm-hmm. uh, what sort of psychological training, if any, was done prior to uh, being given a badge and a gun? You did a psychological examination before being hired. So it, it consisted of um, standard psychological tests of answering multiple questions. I think it was like 450 questions you had to answer. Then you sat down with the psychologist and went over your answers. And that was it. Do you think that was sufficient? And is it sufficient now, 21 years after you've had your training? Right. So what I think needs to have more important than the pre-hiring psychological exams is an in-service psychological. We have officers, and I always uh, joke that everybody loves firemen, right? Because firemen come, they save the day. Right. When the police come, usually there's something negative that has happened. Whether or not you're the victim of a crime, you're being arrested for a crime, or you've had property damage is something negative that usually precipitates. Or you got a ticket. <laughs> yeah. Or you got a ticket. Right. Yeah. Something, always something negative. So we ask the police to go into these negative encounters over and over and over again. Over time, it has to have somewhat of a psychological effect. And I'm a big proponent of every few years, every officer should have to sit down and talk to someone, right? As a 
a friend of mine who was a, a lieutenant in NYPD and was like, you know, I thought he was one of the best cops I ever worked with at the time, committed suicide. And we, I think, um, uh, last Rudolph, year I'm we at, had- I'm at, I'm at, no, we know it's a serious issue when we come back. Uh, mm-hmm. We will continue with that discussion. Sure. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, comments coming in uh, via the email. A suggestion from uh, Leslie Donahue that uh, perhaps uh, in uh, uh, driver education, that maybe a police officer should be there to give everybody a little uh, uh, course in how a driver should act. Uh, And the fact that, uh, uh, as Rudolph said, uh, you know, if a police officer tells you to get out of the car, get out of the car. And uh, a lot of people don't know that. They think they have a right to sit in their car, and they don't. So that's an important uh, uh, important issue. And also someone suggested that, uh, you know, if police unions were responsible for paying some of these, uh, uh, you know, judgments against police officers, maybe the uh, uh, the incidents would go down as opposed to sticking the bill uh, to the taxpayers. Another suggestion that's come in here. Uh, we continue with uh, with the Rudolph Hall, and also joining us in this segment is Jason Sherwin. Uh, he is the CEO of Deserve and also E-Train, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that. That organization is also uh, represented this evening uh, by uh, Rudolph Hall, veteran from the New York City Police Department. And, uh, Rudolph, I want to go back to you just to button up something we discussed uh, at the end of the last segment. And you talked about uh, the large number of police uh, suicides. Uh, I want to have you uh, button up that conversation before we switch gears. Right. Is this just in response to your question about about the um, psychological uh, assessment and fitness uh, early on in my career, which happened you know, pre-hiring and then never again? And I really feel strongly that we must look at mental health amongst police officers. And I believe mental health affects officers' actions in the field as well as in their personal lives. And I mentioned Lieutenant uh, Mike Pickett, who I used to work with many years ago. He's my first special ops lieutenant and he he took his own life uh, about 11 years ago and it was something that always stuck with me because i never thought he would be the person that would do that mm-hmm. and oftentimes you'll hear when an officer takes his own life his colleagues and friends and family will say like they never saw it coming right and i think because we have people who are dealing with highly stressful um dynamic situations that have a significant impact when it's repeated over and over again Thanks very much. That was an important uh, point to make. Uh, Jason, I want to switch gears to you because thus far we've been talking about uh, the issues and the problems of uh, the police on the street and the day-to-day, day-to-day, split-second decisions 
they have to make. And uh, uh, we learned about you. You're you're involved in, in in neuroscience. What what exactly is neuroscience, and how does that relate to the discussion of uh, uh, police training that we're talking about tonight? Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for that. Thanks for that question, and thanks for having us uh, on the show here tonight uh, to talk about this. I mean, really, what um, what DeServo does is we train, we measure and train in high stakes decision environments. So we started with simple science experiments, really, uh, back when I was a postdoc um, and when my partner, Jordan, uh, was a PhD student, we were just looking at how uh, people make decisions off of things they see flashed on a screen in front of them, uh, or like simple sounds that they hear, uh, uh, you know, in like headphones. And what we started realizing was that as we started making those stimuli more complex, looking at like how a baseball hitter reacts to a pitch or how a musician reacts when listening to music, we started to realize that the brain and nervous system of every person alive who starts specializing in those areas starts to develop a certain way. And we can measure that. And not only can we measure that, we can make them better at that particular skill is what we found. So that's really what the 30,000 view is here of neuroscience and then applying that to how police officers interact on a daily basis with things like citizen context we, we talked about vehicle stops earlier um, decisions on use of force those are all them seeing things and hearing certain things and then having to react in we talked about 700 milliseconds or something before like that when we work with baseball hitters and major league and minor league level they've got 300 or 400 milliseconds to decide and so those key moments, those are really split seconds. You're not going to teach somebody like to think about it for a second, decide, is this the right thing to do or is this not? It's almost instinctual at that level. And that's really what we started to see in our research back when we were at Columbia University. And then later on when we made DeServo out of that research, and now we're trying to apply it with E-Train to help train police How officers. are you, what sort of re uh, reluctance are you running into because, uh, Many of the, the police structures that you deal with around the country, uh, they're older police officers. Uh, they may look at uh, neuroscience as some voodoo thing that was cooked up in a, in a Columbia University laboratory, and, and they're reluctant to try something new. How, how do you go about convincing them and uh, also talk about uh, maybe how you bring uh, uh, you know, Rudolph into these discussions to maybe— uh, you know, talk Turkey with, uh, with, with, with some other fellow police officer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that the, the way, the way we met Rudy, for instance, was that um, we reached out to someone, actually someone I knew had a connection with New York city police. And um, you know, we were in the early stages of developing E-Train. We had done a partnership with the Anchorage police department um, all the way up in Alaska of all places. And, uh, and we had developed a product for them about DS escalation recognition or escalation recognition and how to recognize body language cues that uh, possible suspects give and and how they and to measure really how quickly they're reacting to that and when we when we came to New York City police um, stop and frisk it's kind of colloquially as it's known they call mm -hmm. it investigative encounters was really the big issue mm -hmm. because they're working under a, a DOJ um, uh, decree there, consent decree, mm -hmm. where they have to follow certain guidelines in terms of how you interact with potential suspects, for instance, on the subway or on the street. And so, um, and the, and the, and the, and the, cons the consent decree came after 
those uh, judged the New York Police Department as, as being overly aggressive. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. And it was, uh, and particularly towards Black American or Latino Americans. And so there was, there was definitely a racial component to this, kind of like we heard earlier in the discussion tonight. And so, um, but, you know, these are, these are kind of, there's this topic of implicit bias that comes up frequently. And there is training that happens for that, for instance, in New York City at the prosecutorial level. But, you know, one of the things, one of the luxuries you really have in a courtroom is being able to deliberate, right? Think about what's in front of you, consider all the different perspectives. You don't have that in 500 milliseconds. You don't have that in 600 milliseconds. You don't have that when you're thinking that your life is potentially, you know, under threat. And so what we're trying to do with E-Train is simulate what it's like to be in that moment uh, and then measure the reactions that officers have. How quickly do they recognize that the suspect has thrown away his gun or not, right? How quickly do they react and tap on the screen and say, oh, the, the gun's gone now, right? Or do they, do they miss that cue? And will we have that baseline to just give them as the feedback directly? Mm. Not to bring up in a trial right. you know, later on if something goes wrong, but to give them that direct feedback so that they can work off of that and improve their own skills. Because okay. all Rudolph, cops really want yeah. to do is do that. R- Rudolph, in, in your case, uh, uh, you're now involved uh, with this E-Train program. Uh, were you a quick adapter of it or were you reluctant like uh, maybe uh, other police officers? No, actually, the first time I was introduced to E-Train, I thought it was a phenomenal phenomenal platform for training for police officers. And one of the things that I've always been a a critic of is how we've trained police in the past. It's typically in static environments, right? It's um, shooting at a target that's not shooting back at you. Your adrenaline's not pumping. It's um, going through scenarios with somebody who's an instructor at the academy who you may know already, and he's acting out some part. And for the most part, they cannot measure or capture what an officer faces in a real life situation. And E-Train, what I found was it was one of the only tools that I'm aware of that allows officers to try to put themselves in a real life situation, whether it's them or a fellow officer has been in and be able to start making decisions. And the other thing that's really important about E-Train, it allows you to see our officers improving. Oftentimes we have, if an officer goes to the range, shoots at a target, some agencies just have pass fail. All right. We have a standard. You got to you know, hit 80% of your rounds. You pass. That's it. We don't determine did that officer improve from the last time they went to the range. Is that officer going to training and being put in scenarios and showing that, all right, he or she is understanding the law and how to apply it in these situations. Mm-hmm where E-Train came in, which is why I was fascinated and happy to be able to assist uh, Jason and Jordan in, in their efforts, is that it allows you to actually see, are cops getting better? Maybe a cop's not doing as well as he or she was doing before, and maybe something personal going on, or maybe they're just not understanding the application of the law, but it gives leadership an opportunity to identify. Majority of my officers are you know, recognizing when a situation is escalating within 10 seconds but i got two officers who it takes them 15 seconds to recognize that's a problem maybe i need to do more training for those specific officers because of everything that's been going on and all the the national media uh that's that's been focusing on this recently do you think that a police officer today tonight in america is more or less likely to engage anyone in an aggressive manner rudolph 
I think probably less likely. And that that's in the, the dangerous part of that is officers are still being tasked with doing their jobs. So if you have an officer going into a situation who is now hesitant, who is fearful, uncertain, they're more likely to become a victim of a crime than it would have in the past. And an officer who takes an approach, well, I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to be on the cover right. of a newspaper. That's putting public the public at risk. Right. And oftentimes across the United States in an urban environments, black and brown communities are the ones who need the police services the most. Right. So right. that's putting those folks who are vulnerable already at risk if officers take the position that they are not going to do or take any proactive action when they suspect criminality. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Jason Sherwin and also Rudolph Hall. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8020. And we've got a couple of calls. We'll bring them into the conversation when we roll on from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back, and great to have you with us. Uh, let's uh, go to a call. Let's go to Johnny, who's listening to us tonight in El Paso, Texas. Go ahead, Johnny. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, I'll get right to it. Uh, I agree with you and all the people on the, on the, on the uh, panel that the best way when you have a traffic, traffic stop is complicity. You agree, do what you ask, do what you're told, and you get on down the road. But I want to talk about the situation that happened in, in uh, Virginia, West Virginia, whatever, I which is which one of them, where this, this uh, military gentleman was asked to stop, but he, he, you know, you know, so he carefully made it to a lighted right. place. And then after he was treated like he did, he was treated, do you think he did the right thing? Because they treated him real bad, perpetrated him, threw him on the ground and so forth. Too. I'd like to know that Mr. Rudolph thinks that, that was the right thing to do to try to get to a safe place. Obeying everything they said, but going for a lighted area. What's his thought? What's his thoughts? Okay, let's 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 see if uh, Rudolph is familiar with that case. Rudolph, are you? Yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with the case. Um, so, two two things. One, when I'm going to tell you the perspective from the officer's side, the officer okay. is engaging in a car stop because I believe he did not see a plate that was visible in the back of the uh, gentleman's car. It ended up being a paper plate, I believe. He just purchased a car and the plate was in the window, but whatever reason, the officer couldn't see it. So the officer thinks he's doing a car stop and maybe an unregistered vehicle. He puts his lights and sirens on. The vehicle doesn't stop. Now, he wasn't speeding away. It wasn't a chase, but he continues to drive along. So now, for me, the officer, what's going through my mind? 
why is this guy not stopping? What is he doing? Is he trying to hide something in the car? Is he trying to pull something out of the car? Is he trying to, you know, who knows what he's doing, right? We don't know. So now that raises the officer's um, fear somewhat. Again, I mentioned car stops being such a dangerous situation because you don't know what you're encountering. Once that stop happened, and I think I heard the officer mention he was treated like a felony car stop. There was no felony crime, first off, right? So I don't know why he would treat like a felony car stop. But once he engaged that individual who had his hands out of the car, and I believe he's telling that he was scared, he was trying to get to a lighted area, that's when to E-Train, to what E-Train offers, right? That's when that de-escalation should have started. Okay, so this is not a guy who's trying, who stole a car. This is not a guy who just murdered someone. This is someone in uniform, member of the armed services, showing me his hands. He's explaining his level of fear. Instead, that officer escalated that encounter which led to where it went. So I believe he was fired right after, which I think was a, a tremendous idea. He does not deserve or nor should he be a police officer anywhere in the United States of America. Okay. Uh, all right. Thanks very much, Johnny. I'll, Are you still there? Thank you. And I agree with what, and I agree with what he said. Thank you so much. Very good. Uh, you, by the way, I, I'm just noting, and uh, I have uh, uh, the citizen alert on my phone. And just, just since we went on the air about an hour and 45 minutes ago, I'm looking at sh- at shootings, shootings all over. I mean, literally within 15 miles of where I'm doing this program, actually, uh, about two and a half miles away, uh, there was a shooting, uh, again, 15 minutes ago. So uh, people are getting shot all the time. Uh, back to you, uh, Jason, uh, in uh, when... What is your what is your goal now? You're trying to reach out to as many police departments as 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 possible. Uh, what sort of reaction are you getting? You mentioned that you started in uh, um, in uh, Anchorage. Uh, what's what are you up to these days? Well, really, where we are now is we we got some great feedback from from Anchorage, from New York police, uh, from New York State Police, even and from a couple of other departments uh, down South Florida and in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia. Everyone has told us, we really love this. We don't know how to pay for it. And so what the, that's been the biggest holdup that we've run into. And you know, we've, we've tried to you know, slice and dice this even from the, the, the financial side to say, you know, if you are paying millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, I mean, how much was the George Floyd settlement? 27 million? Right. You can pay a tenth of that and and never have that incident happen or tens of others or hundreds of others incidents like that ever happen. Everybody wins is kind of the way we look at it from the dollars and cents side, but also the humanitarian side. And we're trying to get that, you know, that I think argument across. We have, I think, buy-in from every law enforcement officer we've shown this to, um, I think has been extremely impressed with this because it's about them. It's not about someone judging them externally. And I think that's a, a really important element that you can't uh, just put to the side and say, you know, police officers are just going to do this because they're told that. Is this so something we're trying to approach it from that perspective? Is this something that uh, that the that the political community uh, should get behind? Because uh, I mean, after all of these incidents, there's always talk about what what the you know reform is going to be. And yeah. uh, a lot of them don't have an answer. You you are one answer. I guess another question I want to get you to weigh in, uh, Rudolph, and that is uh, uh, on the initial quality of the police officer that is that is selected. James Clyburn had said that really it's about the recruits. we got to recruit right. the right people. 
Uh, he was suggesting, obviously, that uh, they should be recruiting uh, African-Americans to to work in African-American communities, but just the, the general increased presence of African-Americans uh, may be part of this recruitment challenge. Are there any other things that, that, that you would recommend uh, about oh, that? I, I, there's one thing just to that point. I, I wouldn't say that we should recruit African-American officers to work in African-American communities. We should recruit African-American officers because we are part of this United States of America, right? Okay. African-Americans are a part of the culture, a part of the society, a part of every community. So that's why we need to recruit African-American officers. Um, I think the the training, and again, I think you mentioned this, Bruce, regarding a political spectrum, right? These incidents happen and we say, okay, let's, uh, we, we need officers need more training and we need to hire better recruits. The My fear is that because of the current climate in the United States of America right now, that the quality of recruit will be diminished. Because okay. there are office, there's potential officers out there who really want to be cops and really be good at it, but they're fearful, right? They don't want to be the next nope. uh, it's, person caught up in a... In unfor- a unfortunately, we have to end on a, on a disappointing note, but I want to thank each uh, of you sorry. for... Uh, uh, for adding to a great discussion this evening, uh, Jason uh, Sherwin and also uh, Rudolph Hall. Uh, DeServo, uh, info at DeServo and E-Train. E-Train is something that you want to look it up. I'm Bruce Dumont. Connor McKnight has made this program possible. Good night until next Sunday night. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support. 
for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.